sleep. The elusive pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Often unattainable, but once in a blue moon, if you get it, man, it feels so good. Same goes for the sleep of your toddler. Today on All Good in the Motherhood, I have the pleasure of introducing you to my sleep consultant, the one who helped train my son, Matthew, and who continues to be a massive resource for us as sleep issues and regressions pop up. And that's a huge part of this episode, the 18-month sleep regression, because apparently that is a thing. Hadley Seward is the founder of Bon Nui Baby. She's a local New York City mom whose company has a global reach. I was thrilled to get her on the phone and work through some of the biggest sleep issues that are facing parents today. This is All Good in the Motherhood with Teresa Priolo. I'm here today with Hadley Seward of Bon Nuit Baby. Hadley, did I say that right? You did, yes. Okay, can you say it so it sounds super fancy and French and official? <laughs> bon Nuit Baby. Ah, that's what you get for learning French at some point in your life. <laughs> And not sort of stuttering your way through. You have been, for my little guy, Matthew, you have been our sleep savior. I feel like I have communicated with you more with one eye open and one eye closed than probably anybody else in my life. (laughs) Um, Tell us a little bit about who you are, your background, and what you do with as a pediatric sleep consultant. Sure. So uh, the reason I actually became a sleep consultant was um, my son, who's now five and a half, he was really struggling with sleep around 13 months. Um, And we had never even heard of a sleep consultant. We finally figured out that was a thing. We hired one. We, within two weeks, we really had fixed all of his sleep problems. And I just found that process so transformative for me as a parent that I was like, I would like to help other parents feel the same way. And it was transformative for me, not only in the fact that obviously we were sleeping more, which is a massive game changer, but I also just felt, I felt like I was in control of the sleep situation versus the sleep situation controlling me. And that just gave me a lot of confidence um, in parenting in general. Um, And so sort of based on that experience, I went and did a, I got my certification at the Family Sleep Institute, which is based in California. It's a 250 hour training course so it's one of the more sort of complex hardcore ones out there and ever since then it's been about four years ever since then I've been working with families um, with kiddos zero to six on getting more sleep and you know making sure the whole family is getting sleep the the, the children and also the parents because I think that that's important and you were not living in the states when you did this right weren't you living overseas yeah, so um, we, uh, my husband and I lived in France for six years, in Paris and in Lyon. And so we were living in Lyon, which is in the south of France. We were living there um, when my son was born. So I really started my business there. Um, and then we moved back to New York about two years ago. And in Europe, do they approach sleep with the same intensity, fixing all the issues, trying to figure it out, fretting over it the same way that Americans do? No. Um, I think part of it is that, well, sleep in buildings now exist in France. It's really not sort of the industry that it is here, um, but they, they do exist, but it's, it, so it is new. Um, I, I think the big difference is that from having, in, in my point of view, um, the, the, I think that the French medical system is just kind of set up a bit differently. So people don't have that same instinct as us. Americans do to go Google everything and kind of like second guess our doctors and suggest their own diagnoses and things like that. And so really like what your doctor says is what you do. 
Um, so I think that, you know, a lot of the French doctors um, are just kind of like, okay, you know, your baby is X number of months. It's time for them to sleep all night. So, you know, cut out the feeds, you know, put them to bed at seven, go to them at seven. And the parents just do that. Um, versus here where people are like, oh, but I read this thing online or, you know, whatever it is. Um, well, yeah, so or my baby needs is, the feed or maybe I, I'm not comfortable with them crying all night or whatever the issue might be. Exactly. Yeah. And they're, you know, those are all obviously very um, valid concerns. But I think that I think the reason that I thought a lot about this, um, I think the reason that there is there is not the same sort of like uh, obsession to sleep that there that there is here. It's just because um, it, it's just a different it's just kind of a different setup. I don't think there's something like in the water that makes French babies sleep better. But I do think overall they do. Um, but, you know, they're different countries, different approaches, and, you know, they each have their own merits, I think, for sure. Is co-sleeping big there? Um, in France, not so much. That doesn't mean that, obviously, people do bed share there, but it's not, um, you know, in, in some countries, it's, it's a very, it's, it's big, like, cultural phenomenon. Um, it's, it's not as much there. The reason I ask all this is because these are all the things that I struggled with as a new parent, as you well know. So for our listeners, I reached out to Hadley when Matthew was about 14 weeks, maybe, maybe 15 weeks. And we're part of the same moms group, which is such a phenomenal resource. I know you've helped so many other moms um, in our group down by us as well, because we all say, what sleep consultant are you using? I'm with Hadley. <laughs> Me too. Oh, that's awesome. So we're all doing the Google document sort of dance with Hadley trying to figure out all of our kids sleep issues but when I met you Matthew was just really giving us hell and we didn't understand why he wasn't a good sleeper or I mean I'm a great sleeper I'm a fan I think I'm a fantastic sleeper my husband not so much but I thought I'm the one that birthed the baby therefore my kids should closely mirror my sleep habits which is the more the merrier you know like the more sleep I could get the the better off I am and that was just that's not Matthew's personality so getting him I think getting him set with sleep for us was truly one of the most life-changing things that happened to us as a family and funny enough, the first night that I met you, first day that I met you with Matthew, was the first time he gave us a solid stretch of sleep. Um, and I thought, Am I do, it, do I need this? And then I remember you <laughs> saying to me, that always happens. Every time when you meet yeah. a new client, that's the night. Yeah. They're like, oh, we just paid you, and our baby like did a great job that night. And then usually it just goes back to whatever was happening, but it's as if the baby like knew that they were like seeking help. <laughs> I'm going to show you I can do this. Yeah, yeah. So we sleep tra- with your guidance. We sleep trained Matthew, and um, I don't really know what method we use. It, it's easy for me to say the cried out method, but we had time to check. So what does that? F- it, it was like a bonui slash what Fer- what Ferber <laughs> um, method? yeah what? what you guys said was probably closest to like the Ferber method so you were you know you were having interaction with him you were doing checks um so that he can't knew you were there and you knew that he was he was he wasn't happy but he was okay he was safe um but it wasn't sort of the classic like you know you put him down and then you see him in the morning yeah and and what I learned throughout our process which uh, we started sleep training Matthew on Sunday into Monday, and by Friday, the kid was sleeping through the night. And I'm not saying that because you're on the phone. Legitimately, within the span of one work week, my child was sleeping through the night with your guidance, which is why I think what you do works so well because Matthew, from the moment he entered this world, 
clearly was tired and was screaming to sleep and we just didn't know how to read his signals but he now loves nighttime sleep to the point where he it's bedtime he's okay with it he gets his sleep sack he brings it to us he's asking for the pacifier we put him in bed and he's like peace out guys i'll see you in a couple Mm -hmm. of hours that was the way it was really going until recently where we hit a sleep regression and i think i think that's what it is or or maybe my kid's just rebelling but it, it leads me to the question of sleep regressions they happen so often during the first couple of years of a baby's life, and I don't think that most parents are fully prepared for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there are a couple of big sleep regressions in the first two years. Um, there's obviously one at four months, which most people know about. There's another one between eight and 10 months, um, 12 months, 18 months, and then again at 24 months. And they all look a little different. Um, so it's not just the, the four month sleep regression usually is the worst just because all of a sudden whatever was working to get your baby to sleep doesn't work anymore. Like if you were, for example, rocking them to sleep and then transferring them to their crib, or their bassinet, all of a sudden, you know, overnight one day from one day to, to the next, they, they wake up, you can't transfer them anymore. Um, the form of sleep regression is different than the others. It's not actually a true sleep regression. Um, at, at four months, um, a baby sleep changes. Uh, the architecture of the sleep changes. So like their sleep cycles, the, the length of their sleep cycle change, um, what happens during the sleep cycles in terms of light and sleep changes. So those are actually permanent changes. That's their, you know, there's kind of newborn sleep and then there's four months and older sleep which very much resembles adult sleep in terms of what the sleep cycles look like. So the form of regression, I mean, we call it a regression because all of a sudden sleep goes crazy, but really it's more of a wake call for parents that it's time to work on self-soothing. It's time to get them on a different schedule and move away from using awake windows for naps and things like that. Um, the other regressions, if, if everything is going really well before, like if they're on a good sleep schedule, if they... Um, aren't going to bed too late, if they know how to self-soothe, all of a sudden sleep goes crazy sort of around those regression times. If you keep everything the same, you don't add anything, add any new bad habits then, then sleep will just go back to what it was after a week or two. And the, the regressions typically are based around developmental milestones. So it could be like between eight and 10 months, a lot of babies start to certainly start to crawl or cruise, some even start to walk that early. So, a lot, you know, there's a lot of uh, language acquisition going on so usually the sleep regressions coincide with something about that's going on developmentally so it's not that the baby suddenly needs like you know the 12 month regression it's not like all of a sudden they need to eat overnight or all of a sudden they need to hang out with overnight it's usually just something else that's disturbing their sleep and then what kind of causes full-blown regression is when the parent starts to respond in a different way and the child then gets used to that like if you start for two weeks if you're checking on your 18 month old three times a night even once the sleep regression has gone they're still going to be expecting that, if that makes sense. I remember you telling me that um, a baby practices their developmental issues or milestones at night. Mm-hmm. Like that's essentially yeah, when they work so through their issues. Yeah, so especially like um, the physical, like, um, like crawling, for example. Um, it's really common. I have a lot of clients who are um, between like six and nine months. They're like, yeah, my baby was awake last night for an hour you know, trying to crawl or crawling around their crib or staying, like cruising around their crib. Um, and I actually saw that too with my daughter around eight months. Um, she would get up in the middle of the night. I would see on the monitor because she was, she could get up on a fours that she couldn't figure out how to move forward. <laughs> so I would see her on the monitor, like rocking back and forth, clearly trying to like 
figure out how to launch body forward. Um, and she, you know, she was making noises. I mean, she was very frustrated. Like, she wasn't crying. She was definitely kind of fussing. But it wasn't because she needed me to come in. It was because she was just felt frustrated that she couldn't, you know, she couldn't figure this out. So I do think it's really common for babies to practice, babies and toddlers, to practice their skills uh, in the middle of the night or at nap time just because it's calm, it's quiet. It's kind of like their downtime. And, you know, they might be singing or talking to themselves or whatever in the middle of the night. And it's just like a sort of a safe space for them to practice these new skills. I remember when Matthew started talking. I mean, the, the, the four month we had a regression, progression, whatever you consider it. Um, mm-hmm. And we got through that pretty easily. But admittedly, that was right around the time that we started sleep training with you. And I, I feel like because my brain is just gone now. I have like one cell left. But I feel like that we started to sleep train right around the time where our sleep issues were at their worst and that might actually have been our regression and I think we Mm -hmm. I think we then started implementing those really good habits with you afterwards but I remember the when Matthew started talking specifically and the first couple of nights that he would get up and say mama dada mama dada and the first like night or two I thought well this is so cute it's the middle of the night and oh my gosh he's calling for me this is adorable and then by night four or five I was like kid mommy mommy loves you so much but mommy really needs you to stop saying her name at three o'clock in the morning you know the novelty of it for a lot of people I think wears off because we're so far removed from that newborn stage of constant sleep deprivation you know your body Mm -hmm. almost forgets I think how to handle it a little bit which doesn't make the situation any better Uh, yeah I think actually once you know let's say you have like an eight month old or an 18 month old and who's been sleeping really well and then they start waking up at night even if it's just like once I feel like that's actually more for me that's more difficult than that newborn time because our bodies are no longer used to being up, you know, to, to, to having interrupted sleep overnight. Um, like if one of my kids is up at night, the next day I'm just like, I'm like, oh, I can't, I can't, I can't do anything today. I'm too tired. Like I'm completely like, like obliterated. Yeah, and I also because <laughs> um, I'm not used to it. I also feel like we've given you the tools. Stop waking up. Like you can do this. And right, admittedly, right. And that's you can do this. me feeling like, kid. I taught you this. We did this versus a newborn. We're like, you know nothing. You can do nothing. It's okay. Mommy will be there. Mm-hmm. You know, fast forward a year, and I'm like, you've got this. Now do it, damn it. <laughs> Which is just probably Absolutely. me, my exhaustion. But when it got to the – I thought the – honestly, I thought the regressions were behind us because, as I said, Matthew, we have gotten his sleep – to a great point um, where the nap is consistent. We had dropped the nap at uh, over the summer, that, so we went from two to one. He's getting good, solid sleep. We know when he's tired, when he needs to go to bed early. We, we I felt like we're at a place where we were reading the signs the way we probably should have been all along, but now we're at 20 months, we finally get it. And then something happened, and it all went haywire again, and my husband and I keep saying, but what's going on developmentally at 18 or 20 months that he's waking up? Like he can walk, he can run, he's talking, he's doing all the things that he's been doing for a couple of months now. So what is it with this thing at 18 or 20 months? Why are things going haywire now? 
Yeah, so at 18 months, I mean, they're, even though obviously they have a lot of like gross motor skills figured out, um, there's still a lot that they're learning. So even if babies are, I mean, obviously they're saying words at that point, but they're also soaking up an incredible amount of vocabulary from, you know, from daycare or their nanny or whatever from you. Um, so language acquisition is certainly part of it. Um, you know, it could be that they're trying to figure out something with like fine motor skills. It could be that, you know, at this age, they really start to make connections between you know, X, Y, and Z. So, you know, there, there is a lot going on. Um, what I find about working with families sort of between a year and a half to two and a half years is also that all of a sudden um, our, our kiddos realize that they can assert, th- that they can assert themselves, that they can influence situations, that they can make themselves known. And so I think also, you know, especially for families that really struggle, start to struggle with bedtime all of a sudden, like they're, Previously, their child was just going to bed, no problem, and all of a sudden, you know, they're really struggling to go down. It's usually that, um, and, and this happens more, I guess, between two and three, where the child starts, you know, let's say you always read three books, for example, and all of a sudden the child's like, one more, one more book, or like, one more kiss, one more hug. And it's like you were saying, um, like when Matthew was saying your name overnight, as parents were like, that's so cute. You asked me for one more hug and one more kiss. Like, of course I'm going to give that to you. I love you. Like, this is amazing. And that really snowballed because all of a sudden it's, I want one more book and I want three more songs and I want five hugs and I want, I mean, I remember when my son was two and a half, I ended up saying, he wanted me to say good, wanted me to say good night to like 50 inanimate objects around his room. Oh my gosh. Um, and so this happens to pretty much every family. It happened to us. Um, you know, all of a sudden you have a very like, manageable bedtime routine and then the next day you realize it's actually like, it's taking like two hours all of a sudden. Um, and so, so I think part of it is, you know, part of that year and a half to two and a half, those regressions, it, it, part of it is just you know, language, ac- language acquisition, like cognitive stuff that's going on. But part of it also is just they're trying, they've learned that they can, you know, they can, essentially they can get us to do what they want. Sometimes. They can negotiate. Um, they have any, some sort of negotiating power with us. Exactly. Exactly. And I mean, toddlers, anyone who's a toddler knows that they love to uh, push against the boundaries that we create. And I think that parents, and I include myself here, like when we see our toddler like not following a rule or trying to kind of go right up to the edge of the rule um, and really test the limit, we think it's because they don't like having those boundaries, but they're actually making sure that the boundaries are there, right? They want to feel safe. They don't want to live in a world where there are no boundaries. So um, when when parents start to see these behaviors of kind of like pushing boundaries around bedtime or waking up in the middle of the night trying to get you to come in when you kind of know there's not a, you know they're not ill or you know you kind of know there's not a problem um usually the best response is to kind of double down on those boundaries and they create um create a situation where you, your child knows exactly what to expect and you're very consistent in enforcing it because that's that's what's going to make them feel the most secure. If you're a parent who did sleep training, so for us, we did the time check. So during a regression, mm-hmm. do you still recommend timed checks? For example, with Matthew, we have found that he's on to us. Like that we've, he's so much smarter than we are. And I don't know how and when this happened, but like the jig is up for me, you know? So um, mm-hmm. with him, we started to find that we would go in and check on him. And I would put my hand on his back and say, mommy's here. Mommy loves you. You know, as the book says, go the F to sleep. But mommy loves you and just we're going to do this. And at first it was fine. But then I started to find that the more I went in, even just to reassure him, 
the louder the crying got or the longer he stayed up. And the the nights were, frankly, I just didn't wake up and I thought, oh, or, or I didn't get out of bed. I woke up, but I didn't actually move. And I thought, let me just give it a few more minutes. Those are the nights where he actually ended up putting himself back to sleep. And lo and behold, now I think we're out of it. So it seems to me that the more I checked on him, the worse the situation got. So do you recommend time checks or, or for some babies or do you not? You mean, you mean babies that have already been sleep trained? Yeah, babies who have already sort of, that was the rule that was set when they were four months or five yeah. months ago. Yeah, so I mean, it depends how long ago it was. Um, it's not like, you know, if you sleep trained a baby at you know, a year and a half ago, it's not like they're gonna like remember that moment in time. Um, I think that, if you typically have a pretty hands-off approach overnight for nighttime, then I would definitely stick with that during sleep regression. Um, you know, it really depends on what the parent is comfortable with, um, but it also depends on the temperament of the child. So a lot of children, if you, like he probably, like Matthew probably wanted you to go in and pick him up, for example, and you weren't doing that. And so it probably, you know, it could have, it, it probably just like, like fueled the fire. Yeah when you would come in, give him a little bit of interaction, but not what he wanted, and then then you left again. Um, so, you know, if you parents, parents that I talk to typically will know if that's, if that's gonna fuel the fire or not. Um, if if checks aren't helping, I wouldn't do them. If they, you know, if they do help, it kind of goes back to it quickly and it's a short-lived thing, that's one thing. But if they're really prolonging the process or he's getting even more angry, like he's feeding off that interaction, then I would I would either limit them or just not do them. Um, and usually with sleep regressions, certainly with, I mean, my, my children also go through sleep regressions, obviously, like they're not magical unicorn children. Um, you know, the first few nights as a parent, you're like, oh, are they, are they sick? You know, like what's going on? Like you're worried there's a problem, which is totally normal. So I usually tell clients like, if it's around, if it's around the time of a sleep regression, so, you know, 12 months or 18 months or whatever. And after a few days, like there are no new teeth and there's no signs of illness, and you can kind of assume it's a sleep regression. And at that point, you just take a more hands-off approach. Obviously, if like your child's sleeping beautifully and then they're up screaming all night, you're going to go see what's going on because you're, you know, you, you need to make sure they're okay and that's normal. And I, I do the same thing, but kind of once it's apparent that everything is okay, that there isn't, they're not getting sick or whatever, then that's when you say, okay, this is a sleep regression. I'm going to take a step back. I know what to do. I know what to do. I'm just going to let this just play out knowing that their sleep's gonna they're gonna go back to sleeping because ultimately they want to sleep i mean they, they do yeah. they, they they want the rest and they need it they need it yeah they really need it um let's talk about what affects sleep so f what amazes me is that some kids are not phased by sleep regressions my best friend's children she never went through this she now has two daughters and i use the word regression she's like what's that my sister didn't have regressions with her three kids. And now here I am, you know, drudging through the mud thinking, I'll get through this eventually. Why does it affect some children and not others? Is it temperament? Is it environment? Is it something that, you know, what is it? And what's at play here? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think that, I think it's a couple of things. Um, I, I mean, I think every baby does go through, let's not call it for the, for the let's not even call it regressions for the specific for the specific um, discussion because, you know, there are developmental things that 
happen, right? But the baby's still going through it. So a 16-week-old baby is their sleep is changing because that's what happens at 16 weeks. Their circadian rhythm is fully developed at that point. Um, but, you know, it might be, and this actually happened with my older son, we didn't really see the form of sleep regression, but it, it's just because we locked into a schedule that worked, right? Like by accident, we just happened to be using the schedule we should have been using. So some of it I think is luck. It's like, it, it just depends on what you were doing beforehand. Um, but I do think that some babies are more flexible sleepers and some are a little less flexible. So that does not mean that some babies or some kids are bad sleepers and they just don't need sleep or they don't know how to sleep. It just means that um, just like some, some adults are more flexible in life and some are less flexible, babies and kids are like that with sleep. So a more flexible sleeper probably can get a, can probably get away with more and the, the parents might not notice regression as much versus a baby who's just, you know, not as flexible as a sleeper is probably going to, um, you're just going to notice it more. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I'm keenly aware of the fact that you're not using the words good sleeper and bad sleeper. Yeah, and I don't really believe, you know, I, I don't believe that they're like bad sleepers. And I, you know, I, the, the people that contact me usually have less flexible sleepers um, or, you know, one child's flexible and one's not flexible. But I, I think there is this worry of parents. They're like, you know, and, and I get asked this a lot. They're like, this just is my kid just a bad sleeper? Like, or, or do we just have to get up at 5, 5 a.m. every morning for the rest of our lives? The answer being no. Like, your child's not just a bad sleeper. Like, we definitely work on it. But I, I do think that there is kind of this misconception that there's just some kids out there that don't need to nap all day or only need seven hours of sleep night or whatever you know like we kind like that's kind of a misperception that's out there i i know somebody very very close to me their child um still gets up at they put the bed the kid to bed at seven thirty or 8 maybe and the child gets up at around 11 p.m sometimes eleven thirty, and then stays awake until about twelve thirty or 1 30 and then goes mm-hmm. back to sleep and then gets up at like 6 a.m mm-hmm. and they they have told me that they know it's not normal, but they are just convinced that this is their child. And I said to them, I don't know what that is, but I would get professional help because mm-hmm. that that poor child needs more time asleep, it seems. And, and I think that's another misconception that a lot of people have, which you just mentioned, that every just because adults might only some adults might only need five hours versus others need eight doesn't mean that one 18 month old needs five hours and another one needs 12. There is actually a spectrum right. of how much sleep there is, is a, appropriate. Yeah, there's definitely a spectrum. It's usually like at 18 months, for example, it's usually still between 11 and 12 hours at night. Yeah, there might be a baby who needs 11 and there's another that's 12, but it's not like, oh, my baby only needs nine hours at night or something like that. It's still a long a long time. I was talking to Dr. Overnight. I was talking to Dr. Tova Klein, who wrote the book "How Toddlers Thrive," and I've also done mm-hmm. um, a number of interviews with Dr. Harvey Karp, and both of them have very clear ideas of what affects sleep, and they both tell me that. Um, something like starting school is a really big disruptor for a kid, uh, and can manifest in poor sleep. Um, Others believe that teething actually doesn't really affect sleep, that it's something else at play, that teething won't wake up a baby that is asleep. There are so many different Mm -hmm. things that people sort of attribute to poor sleep habits or a a bad night's sleep. What do you think about all these things? There has to be some things that are legitimately impacting a kid's sleep that are outside Mm -hmm. of just what time they go to bed. Yeah, I mean, what, I mean, the the easiest, like the, 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 
I don't know, most concessions I can give you is that what I see affecting sleep typically is bedtime. Like if a child's going to bed too late and they're overtired by, by the time they get into bed, for whatever reason, whether it be they get nap enough during the day or they did just start school and it's exhausting because it's a new experience or they just did a daycare or whatever. Um, if they're overtired when they go to bed, most likely that, that usually leads to either overnight wakings or early morning wakings. Um, and especially like if you have any listeners who's, let's say they put their baby down, their baby passes out, and then it, within a few hours is waking up again, getting upset, that usually is a very clear indicator that bedtime is just too late that night. Um, my daughter does the same thing. You know, I'm, I'm not perfect. Sometimes she goes to bed too late. Um, I assume that if she goes to bed too late, within the first two hours, she's going to be up sort of squawking for 10 minutes, and then she goes back to sleep. And that's just that's just like her body trying to kind of, kind of calm it down. Um, so I do think that too late of a bedtime is a big culprit of a lot of the concerns that we have, you know, like waking up at five or waking up overnight. Um, you know, I do think that going back to school or starting daycare definitely can affect sleep. But I think it's, again, it's, it's just because like, it's an exciting, exhausting, like physically exhausting experience. And quite often, like we don't, as parents, we're not like, oh, you just started kindergarten, I should put you to bed earlier for a few weeks. You know, we kind of keep doing what we were doing over the summer, for example, and then that just leads to overtiredness, which then can affect sleep. um, Just to wrap this up with you, because I know that we can honestly, we can talk about this all day, absolutely all day (laughs) long. Um, I mean, it's literally your business, so this, we we can do this all day. But um, I did, I do have a few... Uh, questions that people have asked that are basically mm-hmm. all around toddler sleep and some okay. of them we have already hit on but um, a, a good amount of them deal with babies who are happily going to sleep in their crib every night but then waking up in the middle of the night screaming at the top of their lungs um, whether it be you know a one-time thing and then they go back or it's happening multiple times throughout the night what is that about? Um, is that considered a night terror? Is that a, tr- a tremor? Uh, there's night terrors. There's nightmares. Mm-hmm. Could that be that? Or is that also the developmental thing that you were talking about where they're just sort of trying to work out something and then go back down? It could be a couple of things. So, um, so there, there's a big difference between nightmares and night terrors. I think people use them very interchangeably. Um, night terrors are... A nightmare is, as we know, it's a scary dream. Usually that happens in the second half of the night, um, meaning, you know, between sort of like midnight and morning. And usually the child is, you know, if you go into them, they're like, oh, my God, I just had a dream about, I don't know, like the snowman from Frozen or whatever it is, you know, the werewolf, whatever it is. They, they, know, they remember it. It's very real to them. And they'll remember it the next day. Um, a night terror is actually very different. It happens in the first half of the night. Um, the child will not, the child essentially, it's, it's almost like sleepwalking. Like they're, they're, they manifest as if they're upset and as a, it's a nightmare, but they're actually not, they won't even be aware the parent is in the room. Um, the, I have two sleep consultants on my team, one of whom lives, lives in Denver and her son actually night terrors if he, the trigger for him is if he goes to bed too late, if he's overtired still have a night terror that night. Um, and, and overtiredness is actually a really big um, cause of, of night terrors. But um, so, for, so for a nightmare, obviously you would, you, you know, you want to go in, you want to comfort your child, make sure they know they're safe. For a night terror, you're actually better kind of staying hands off. Like you can remain in the room to make sure that they're okay, but you don't really want to interfere the, you don't want to interfere with the process because it kind of needs to work itself through. And they won't know, again, if it's a night terror, they're not going to know you're there. 
and they're not going to remember it in the morning. Um, Do they normally have their eyes closed? Or are their um, eyes it open? It, it can be open. It can be open. It's almost like their their eyes are open, but they can see you. Wow. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty terrifying um, as a parent. And, you know, obviously, if you don't know what it is, obviously, if you think it's a nightmare, you go and you try to, um, you know, you try to comfort them. And it's like they, you can't because they, they're, they're kind of like in this. Um, so it could be that. It could be a nightmare. nightmare. Um, it could be, again, it also depends on the response. So whenever a parent says, you know, why doesn't my 18-month-old or 2-year-old, like, why, are, why do they wake up three times overnight? I say, well, what do you do when they wake up? And if they say, oh, you know, I go in and check on them and pat them on the back, or, oh, I go offer them some water or whatever, I say, well, at this point, they're probably, you know, if it's been, it's been happening for a few days or a few weeks, well, it's happening because they would love nothing more than to see you in the middle of the night. So if they know they wake up and call for you and you're going to bring them water or whatever it is, then that's your reason right there. That's it is so insane, the complexities of sleep because I don't think about it. I just put my head on that pillow and say goodnight till the morning. But right, you know, there's so much more to it. Um, okay, so that was one about night terrors, nightmares. You, um, a lot of people asked about the nighttime wakings coming, or even not nighttime, but the subsequent wakings after the child has been put to bed and how they should handle it because. N- Oftentimes, if a kid, especially it's about three three years old or so, they're getting out of their toddler bed or whatever it is mm-hmm. and trying to come into the parent's room. So how does a parent mm-hmm. handle that? I mean, I I don't even know if this is legal, but I know parents who put locks on the door. From is, Are you supposed to do yeah. that? Yeah, that, that, people definitely do that. Um, you know, if parents do want to go that route, um, what, what I, you know, if, if parents are like, you know, we, we need to keep the child in the room. Like, for example, like, um, you know, if, if you're, 18 month old can come out of their crib, like clearly they cannot be trusted to be like roaming around your apartment, but like in the middle of the night. So right. in that case, I would recommend something like a monkey lock, um, which you can get on Amazon, which basically allows them to open the door two inches, but then it kind of, it keeps it there. Like at the, so they can't close it, but they also can't open it more. Oh. Um, but what I usually recommend, I mean, that's, I kind of see the locks as like the last resort. Like you obviously no parent wants like the idea of locking their, their child in their room. Um, you can try a gate. Um, obviously most toddlers can, they have the capability of climbing over a baby gate, but you know, depending on how old they are, you can kind of explain to them that it's a barrier that's going to keep them safe. Um, if they're actually leaving the room, going to the parents' room, then I recommend doing something called the silent return. Um, if you look it up, you can kind of get instructions, like you Google it, but essentially, um, every single time they get out of their bed, you return them to the room. You don't engage with them. You don't, you know, you're not like, why are you doing this? You know, you stay super calm, super zen. You don't talk to them. You return them to the room and then you just keep doing that every single time. It is the most frustrating thing that a parent will ever do in their lives. It's, 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 I mean, I've done it with, with my child and it's, it's just, it's so frustrating because you know initially the child thinks that it's a game they're like oh this is cool you know yeah um and it just takes repetition you just have to keep doing it and it you know it might be i've had clients where the first night the child left the room 60 times and then the 50 next night times? 40 oh yeah the next time it was like 40 times the next night it was 20 times you know so it's not like you do it twice and they figure it out like it definitely takes a lot of um perseverance and consistency but if it's done if it's done correctly meaning there's no engagement and you're super consistent and you do it every single time then um it, it does work it just takes you know it takes a few days I, I, I guess i understand why people just bring the baby into bed 
I get. I mean, it. yeah, that's easier. In the middle of the night, it's easier. Um, but that is a, especially like if you know if it's your child coming in and like climbing in your bed, like it is a hard habit to break because that's what they would like to be doing anyway. So it's a it's a very hard habit to break once you start. Is there? But it's easy. Is there in the middle of the night? It's easy. In your estimation, are are there any habits that? cannot be broken I mean especially when we're talking about it's a baby that's maybe about a year and a half to two and a half or between maybe two and three you know is is there something that is just not reversible I don't think so um, I mean you know there are obviously different strategies depending on what what you're trying to move away from but I mean I've worked with families who have been bed sharing for two or three years and they were like okay you know we're ready to put her our baby or put our, put our child into a crib or put them into a bed or whatever. And we, you know, obviously bed sharing is like a very powerful habit, a very powerful um, sleep association, but we, we've been able to do that. So yeah, I wouldn't say that anything is, is irreversible. I do think that the longer you wait to, if, if you know you want to change a habit, the longer you wait to make that change, the more difficult it gets because just it becomes more ingrained and the child just gets older and it, it makes it more difficult. Hadley, I am amazed that you have chosen a career that puts you <laughs> smack dab in the middle of the one thing that every parent is trying to get as far away from as possible, and there are <laughs> sleep issues. Like, it's really incredible to me that, and you're very good at it, so I, I do understand why you do it and with such passion, but I the only thing I want in my life is sleep right now <laughs> in mm-hmm. copious amounts. So it's amazing to me that you can put up with this with your own children and then also counsel all the rest of us on how exactly to handle it. Well, I think, that, I mean, for me, like it's because we, you know, we can create a lot of change within a week or two. And so for me, like what really keeps me going is the, the, at the end, the parents just, I mean, I have so many parents that are like, this has literally changed their lives. I've had parents just have told me that they thought they were going to have to like, go the divorce route because things are so bad and now they you know they think they, their marriage is going to be okay you know sleep really lack of sleep really impacts us both physically and mentally as, as adults and you know I also really when I'm working with people I'm like look I want you to get more sleep but like I want you to be able to like put your child down to bed know that they're going to fall asleep and then you can go like watch Netflix or talk to your partner or whatever it is that you need to do to recharge like as a human like I want you to have time to do that because I honestly think that that's so important as parents. Like we need a few hours at the end of the night just to be ourselves and to recharge and, you know, get ready for the next day mentally. Cause otherwise it's, it's, it's tough to keep going. <laughs> uh, ain't that the truth. One last thing before I let you go. Yeah. Moment of truth here. Do you, does your husband contribute when it comes to the nighttime wakings since he is married to a sleep consultant who knows all the answers. So does he have to do any of the work or are you the one that's doing it all? Um, he does all the work <laughs> that's nice so you direct and he executes I'm the worst I think that like I think that I'm, I'm, I'm kind of the worst like I'm like when they give my child waking up I'm like do you think she's sick do you think she has a fever and he's like oh my god she's fine like you do this as a living like what is wrong with you woman <laughs> <laughs> he's probably like well Hadley so, on page 21 I remember you telling me that of the Ferber method exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, look, when we sleep trained our, our children, like he, he kind of did that. I mean, he, I, you know, he, he was the one that kind of implemented that, um, just because yeah, I'm a sleep consultant, but I'm also a mom and a parent. And I think when you're the one, when you're the one facing a situation, when you're in the weeds, it's really tough to tell what's going on. It's, you know, 
So uh, yes, my husband is is active in the sleep in the sleep department. <laughs> Just as sleep deprived as the rest of us. I love to hear it. At least we're all in it together. <laughs> yes. <laughs> all right, Hadley. Where can people find you um, and your company and your team of experts if they want to get in touch? Yeah, so um, our website is just our name, so it's Bunwee Baby. that's B-O-N-N-E-N-U-I-T, baby.com. We're also on Instagram. Um, our The name is at underscore Bunwee Baby, and we do Sleep Tips Tuesdays every week, so we, we, we pick a topic and we go in-depth about that topic, and we do Q&As and Instagram Lives and things like that. Um, and then, so I'm based in New York. I have um, one consultant named Lee, who's based in Denver, another one, Molly, who's based in D.C. So we work um, in person in those three cities, but we also work with people, with families across the U.S. and around the world. Yeah, and one of the greatest things that you do is, I mean, obviously I know you so I can meet you at a local coffee shop, but almost everything that you did with us was via Google Doc. So we entered our stuff into a document. You looked at it, assessed it almost every morning, I guess it was, yeah, every morning, and sort of gave us feedback. So it was, we have a personal relationship, but it was also a virtual relationship, which was nice that there was that sort of immediate response. Yeah, yeah, I work with most families virtually. So we have a sleep blog. Also, I do a lot of texting during the day, you know, because time sensitive questions come up. I don't want to be like, oh, yesterday for that nap, you could have done that. I'm I really on top of my family so that we can really try to nip any problems in the bud as they occur throughout the day. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Say hello to the kiddos for me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. Awesome. This is All Good in the Motherhood with Teresa Priolo, part of the Fox 5 Podcast Network. This episode was recorded, edited, mixed, made awesome by Matt Onimus. The executive producers are myself, Matt Onimus, and Imad Ashgar. Byron Harmon is VP of News, and our Vice President and General Manager of Fox 5 is Lou Leone. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or comments, you just want to say hi, reach out to me on Twitter at Fox5Teresa or on Facebook, Teresa Priolo NY. And stay tuned for our next episode.